Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey, this is Paul, and I'm here with Matt and John, and we are starting a series. I think it will be an eight-week series in our estimate. And we're following the outline of Douglas Campbell's new book. What's the name of his book, John? Uh, Pauline Dogmatics, The Triumph of God's Love. So we're going to read the book together, and we're going to take up topics from the book, not necessarily discussing the way that Campbell does it, but at least using the resources and understanding that he uh, is offering. And so today we're taking up the topic of who is Jesus. John then is going to direct us. All right. So I'm glad you mentioned the book, Paul, because uh, I think that's where we are at least beginning with this idea that Douglas Campbell has written more than one, but this is his latest book on Pauline theology. And what he's not doing is engaging directly with the conversation that seems to be what most scholars have talked about, at least in the last, what, like 60 years at this point or 70 years, which is have to have a conversation about justification. So we're not actually doing old Paul versus new Paul here, uh, old perspective versus new perspective or anything like that. But it's to say, let's have a different conversation about Paul. And I think this one is actually a larger conversation. So what Campbell does in this book is he begins with saying that The Pauline corpus functions something like a systematic theology. Not that Paul was intentionally sitting down to write a systematic theology, uh, and he actually addresses narrative and how all that's playing out, but that Paul would have at least had something akin to what we think of as a systematic theology up and running in his own mind. And so when he engages with Scripture, which for St. Paul was, of course, the Old Testament, He does so in such a way that he is relating those Old Testament scriptures to the person of Jesus, specifically with the Jesus who he is preaching as the Son of God, crucified and risen again, and is our salvation. So it's a very dogmatic account of uh, scripture in that sense. So I think that brings up the question that I would like to begin with. And I think it's interesting because we all have sort of similar yet different backgrounds in approaching this issue at this point. But why might the doctrine of justification be lacking as a way of talking about Pauline theology in general? The genius, part of the genius of Campbell's first book on deliverance is that he, in the beginning of that book, takes up a comparison of the approach of what he's calling an apocalyptic understanding over and against the usual contractual theology. And so the justification, actually, you know, it's not just 100 years or 200 years. It's probably 500 years that through the, in the Protestant Reformation, and maybe before that, I think even that you're getting the same thing that uh, Luther is reacting to, that the notion is that we can understand what salvation is in terms of a contract. In a contract, it's primarily a legal contract, that there's two parties, and one party agrees to do this, and the other party agrees to do that. And so that reading 
becomes the understanding through which the New Testament, maybe the whole Bible, is filtered. So that uh, justification uh, comes to mean a kind of legal term in which we are made just or we're made right in the eyes of God. And the entire unfolding, you know, we can just go through and Campbell does that. And by the way, Campbell doesn't take credit for that. He says, actually, that was the work of Torrance, poses there. Alan Torrance. It was him that inspired Campbell to do this. Justification in this understanding becomes the framework for everything. And of course, what Campbell is proposing, and I think it's just obvious there in Paul, that when we talk about salvation, Paul is talking about it in terms that don't even refer to that contractual understanding in the the way that that sets the, the problem and answer up. So what's the problem, or why is to only talk about justification too limited? And I I think the way you presented it is right, which is to say that we have read in even into that word or that doctrine, this contractual apparatus that we take from the legal system. Of course, it is true that the word uh, dikasune or the Greek word even has those connotations, but it's not necessarily true that that's what's being meant in scripture. So I think two things may have happened, and that's one that uh, my inquiring minds, looking at a way to apply a contractual theology to the New Testament, picked up on a word that had those connotations and then made that all of uh, Pauline studies and perhaps, as you said, even a way of reading the Old Testament, a way of relating to God presently. In a way, I think that's what Campbell's corrective is to say, well, if we start with a much larger picture about who is Jesus as the crucified and risen Lord, and rather work through how is this God of love, who is the sustainer and creator of all things, bringing all things back into their proper end through this person of Jesus, or at least this is revealed to us, as you mentioned, his other work is on apocalypsis or uh, unveiling. Uh, revelation through Christ is also being uh, tied to salvation. I think we are seeing two different ways to approach Pauline theology. You know, it's a relatively, I think, modern way to talk about, to have the discussion. Um, as you guys know, I've been doing Origin of Alexandria and, and for him. And uh, to be fair, I mean, I have not gotten to his Romans commentary yet because I'm still doing his stuff on, you know, his homilies on Joshua and Numbers and some of his Old Testament stuff. But um, you just don't really even find that, or at least I haven't found that, even under discussion. Mm -hmm. and, and certainly not in, you know, sort of post-Reformation terms, of course, right? The, but what you do find there is this whole idea of, uh, of being united with God, the process of deification or theosis, and the way that we're actually made right is that you know our passions are being subdued by the victory of, the, of of Christ in our lives? So it's a very sort of straightforward way of having the discussion about well, who is Jesus? Well, Jesus is the one who has victory over sin and death with our participation with Him. So we too then can share in that victory. They don't talk about it in these terms, but to sort of have justification in that sense. Picking up on something that you just said, Matt. Uh, to talk about the series that we're going through, we're going to first start with the question of who is Jesus, which seems like sort of a, you know, that should be obvious to us. But I think it's interesting, and this is a move that Campbell does. We move from the question, who is Jesus, to how is God love? How is God truth? How is God a God of narrative? Uh, then to turning to talking about death and sin and life and deification 
and our own lives. But I think the move there and the key, this, this is an idea that comes from Karl Barth, is the idea that if theology is God talk and what we imagine that we're doing when we're having God talk is that we're saying true things because we're talking about a God who is truth, that when we talk about Jesus, our Jesus talk is nothing less than God talk. And it's uh, you know, a way that God has been unveiled to us so that when we talk about Jesus accurately, if we can get the answer to this question right, who is Jesus, then we automatically have entered into this conversation about who is God. And that conversation about who is God is not one that's just, you know, it's not just a conversation of the mind or it's not all just about the intellect, but actually it's an embodied engagement. Uh, with uh, a return to, or rather a union with God would be a better way of thinking about that. And to just jump off of what Paul was talking about earlier with that sort of contractual language, again, in those ancient writers that I'm looking at, I don't think that you really have that idea, at least with uh, with Origen, where again, it's not about a sort of a quid pro quo or whatever, um, that the whole point of salvation really is, is that now that the resurrection is true, now that God has become human, that you can become divine, that you really can, that your life can be changed and uh, you can imitate mm-hmm. Jesus and therefore become like God. And that's the point of it all. Yeah, no, I think that's right. So that... This is a a problem that has developed progressively in the church. So that even in the Middle Ages, when you have people doing something that is more contractual than what had been done by the patristics, there's still this notion that it's not a conversation that's completely about this exchange between God the Father, God the Son, that we somehow have righteousness imputed towards us. That definitely gets solidified or made concrete with the Reformation, but you see the beginnings of that throughout the Middle Ages, at least in the West. So I think that um, that's interesting that by looking back, we can see a different conversation that was being had about Scripture. But I think the key to that conversation that, say, Origen was having, or Maximus the Confessor or the Cappadocians, when they're talking about who is Jesus, they're always relating Jesus to the Old Testament scriptures in a way that we don't any longer, or we're not accustomed to, right? They're reading scripture in an allegorical or an anagogical way that makes a lot of modern Western Christians, at least, uh, very uncomfortable. So guys, how can Douglas Campbell help us see our way back? So the question of who is Jesus, he's already saying that question is fundamental to how we read scripture, how we talk about God, and ultimately how we um, worship or are divinized. It's everything. Yeah, yeah, it's fundamental. It's a foundational question. Yeah, it, it changes. It literally just changes up everything. It may be a good place to start. And that's the, the, the problem here is that we're really just sort of starting all over the way that we read and and, and understand Christianity. But you use the term dogmatic, which may not be transparent to people. Uh, explain what you mean by it's a dogmatic reading. Of course, how that enters into this conversation most directly is through the title of Campbell's book, which is a play off of Karl Barth's seminal work, uh, The Church Dogmatics. The idea there being, you know, dogma or dogmatics, just a fancy word for teaching. But the idea is then that we have something to say that's both uh, systematized, not in an artificial sense, but in the sense that we have been given something that inherently is ordered towards the truth of God. 
so that our knowledge then has to do with who we are and how we're becoming more and more like Christ. And that this is a teaching that has been given to us, namely by Jesus, but also, uh, I mean, Jesus is the source or the authority of this teaching. It's given to us through the church, which inclusive, of course, of the apostles, through what we think about as being the scriptures. And even then, in, in a sense, based on the way that we're able to see how there are inherent consistencies or links between different issues. And so that's one way of entering into reading scripture that's very different from what, um, maybe I'm speaking out of turn, but most biblical critical studies, which tend to want to get behind the text in some way or want to ground the authority of whether the texts are true or not in historical realities or in um, textual analytical realities that are all discovered in and through some kind of method that's on par with the scientific method. What Campbell wants to do at the very beginning is say, well, this isn't that sort of truth. Actually, this is a foundational truth. So it's one that we're going to work within, not one that we get to work on. And uh, as such, then it's a revealed truth or an unveiled truth, that word apocalypsis. So it's a truth that has been given to us. Uh, And I think this actually is a little bit tricky, and we're going to circle back to this idea here in just a few minutes. But there's a difference, perhaps, between unveiling something that we haven't understood and making apparent something that's been hidden. And what we're talking about is the sort of truth that is actually uh, interwoven with the cosmos, that in God we move and live and have our being, as the Apostle Paul will say. But it's being manifested to us in such a way that we understand and we grow and we realize how we're already situated in uh, a life that is sourced by God from moment to moment, not just in a long change of you know, infinite regress. Maybe describing it in terms of how you read the Bible will make it more clear. That we often read the Bible uh, and imagine, okay, chapter one will be the story here in Genesis. And then you read that, and then you read about Israel, and then you you work your way forward. And finally, you get to that that character there uh, called Jesus. And you understand who Jesus is based upon your previous readings, that you're going to set him in the light of the law, in the light of Israel. And I'm not saying that that's not an aspect of our understanding of who he is, but in fact, we need to read it in a different way. And that is that we begin with the unveiling of Christ, and that unveiling then is a forward and backward movement so that we reread creation we reread the stories of Israel in light of who Jesus is and as Jesus taught on the road to Emmaus, that he is the subject of this book and therefore is the one who gives coherence to the story that otherwise uh, will not really make sense. And the mistake is to imagine that we can make, make sense of who he is on the basis of the story. That's right. And so apocalypsis, it is an unveiling that exceeds the boundaries that we would tend to place Christ in. So yeah, that's right. The way that uh, Campbell addresses this in the book 
is to borrow a word from philosophy. And he doesn't use it exactly the same, but same idea, right? He takes the word foundationalism. And what he'll say is that essentially we're all usually guilty of some form of foundationalism that we want to fit Christ into or Jesus into a, found, a Christian foundation that we already have. And he's encouraging us to not read Paul that way because he doesn't think that Paul read uh, the scriptures of Israel that way. So that Jesus becomes our foundation. And if we're going to let that be, that means we have to resist, and this is straight from Campbell, we have to resist asking or saying, rather, uh, but. So, well, Jesus is the foundation, but I think this is also true, and therefore. Uh, and that's, you know, that's the urge that we often have when we're talking about, for some people, it's miracles or the hang-up. For some people, it's, of course, the peace of Jesus, uh, the pacifistic nature of Jesus' message. You know, it's like, oh, well, Jesus is really good, but all that stuff. What we would be doing would be to insert some other thing or school of thought or frame of reference as our foundation rather than Christ when we read Scripture. But of course, that also has implications for just how we understand who we are from day to day. So I think that's that's a good point, Paul. For our listeners, and, and for me too, because you guys are more familiar with Campbell than I am, and we all you know appreciate the, the work that somebody like N.T. Wright has done. But can you explain to us then how Douglas Campbell's Christology then is getting us to sort of moving us beyond someone like N.T. Wright's Christology? Yeah, so uh, thank you, Matt. You've provided, I think, a good transition <laughs> for getting to the actual the topic at hand. So I think we could call everything that we've said up to this point introduction. So this is the introduction to what we're talking about for the next eight weeks. And as Paul mentioned, it's huge. It's a topic that really does make us at least challenge all, you know, every aspect or about every aspect of the way that we've read scripture or what we understand Christianity to be. I think the the trick there isn't to say that what N.T. Wright is, I don't think we have to say N.T. Wright's work is wrong in some way, that actually uh, if I hadn't encountered N.T. Wright when I did in my own uh, academic career and vocational ministerial career, that I wouldn't have gone on to read a lot of the things that I did. But what you get with N.T. Wright is a focus on the doctrine of justification, almost to the exclusion of a lot of other notions. Or, um, I mean, I would, you know, not to be too critical, but somebody like David Bentley Hart would just come along and say, well, he's focused on uh, getting justification right to the point that he has willingly misunderstood everything else. And I think that's the danger, right? So if we take an issue that we already think is problematic, and it's an issue that uh, really becomes concrete or put at the forefront through the Reformation, not to say that it wasn't already in uh, the thoughts of some folks before then, but it becomes enshrined in doctrine in a way that it never had before. If we make that the focus then of building a new theology, we're already building a, full, a theology based on trying to supply the correct answer to something we think is wrong. Whereas I think what Campbell's trying to do is just to step back and say, well, let's let's start with just who Jesus is generally. And he does that by putting Jesus in connection with the tradition as well. I think we can begin with that question. Here's, here's the first answer that we find uh, in Scripture. Campbell gives us this, and then I want to move in another direction that's, uh, I guess, a bit beyond Campbell. So Campbell will quote 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Say, this is where we're going to begin to answer this question, who is Jesus? That scripture says, For us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, 
and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So Paul has done something interesting there in distributing the Shema equally between God the Father and God the Son as Jesus. Of course, the Shema is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You should love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, is really the is a more literal translation. But it does have this idea, oneness means God stands alone, or the oneness of God refers to completeness, singularity, uh, even to what will later be explained as divine simplicity. I'm not saying that that idea is, is captured by that verse, but that's the way the church fathers are going to go on to explain what does the oneness of God mean. If we think about who Jesus is in those terms, then we realize that creation is, is the major act of God in the Old Testament. And it's the creation of the world, it's the creation of a people, it's the creation of a habitude for God to enter into. And the patristics read sal the salvation narrative in the context of creation. What you might lose by focusing specifically on a doctrine like justification, or even uh, to focus specifically on atonement theories, as many people have done recently, trying to find the most accurate atonement theory. There's been loads of books arguing those points. What I think we begin to lose is actually how uh, the salvation narrative is a part of this overarching God has created uh, a cosmos and a people to be with, and for those people to be like God, and for God to inhabit that cosmos with those people. And that's a very patristic idea that Campbell is recovering, at least in his footnotes, by referencing the Shema to um, Paul's understanding of who is Jesus, but then letting that come into conversation with patristic ideas about, say, recapitulation or about theosis. So in that sense, and maybe this is a question for you, Matt, since you're running in Eastern Orthodox circles, how would you delineate between theosis as being the major point and the way many Protestants think about justification as being the major point of salvation? That's a good question. So I guess just in my own journey, what I thought the justification was is something that's purely, you know, sort of forensic. Um, it's a declaration that's made about you because of the work that Christ has done really quite apart from my involvement. And again, remember, I'm coming from a, from sort of a, a Calvinist background, you know, many years ago and out of that Reformed tradition. That's the, that's the first thing, you know, that, that comes to mind is that justification is more about what God legally has said about who you are. Um, and I think that in, a, in an Orthodox understanding, and especially in light of what you were saying about the whole notion of creation and recreation with the context of sin and death being a kind of anti-creation, if you will, that the point of theosis then is not to just be counted among the, the righteous, which is good, right? <laughs> uh, but it's to actually be made a set to right, you know, uh, that's actually borrowing it. He writes, right, to you, that you really are being set to rights, but in the sense that you are overcoming, and this is, again, something I just can't escape when I, when I read those early fathers, is that whatever the passions are, whatever, you know, sins, whatever obstacles that we have in our lives are really those obstacles to a participation in that mm -hmm. new creation. Um, or another way to say that is just a, a participation in the life of God. So I guess all that to say that my understanding formally was is that, well, what really matters is your sort of legal standing before God, 
uh, whether he says, you know, you're either guilty or not guilty, which is, again, everybody wants to be not guilty. We understand that. And like you said, the even in the Greek word, that, that sort of law, that, that notion of law might even be there. But as I continued on my path, what I really want deep in my soul is to be more like Jesus Christ, you know, to actually be more like God, to be united with him, to be joined in his life, to share in the divine life. I think that in the, at least in the fathers that I'm reading, that is the point of their writing. Okay, now that this thing has happened in, in Christ, how can we ourselves be joined to it? Leaping off from where you just finished, I think another way of asking this question, maybe more poignantly even, is if we refuse to allow sin, the real, the well, you could say really the unreality of our problem of sin, to define who Jesus is. Who is Jesus to us, and why do we need him? It's not that our guilt needs to be addressed. I mean, it does, but that but that we have failed to be fully human. In other words, this is sort of ask also, and, and maybe you know, Paul, you jump in here. This is harkens back to some of our older conversations about if what we understand ultimately evil and sin and death to be as privations, things that we sorely need taken care of because of the finite reality of who we are. But of course, those aren't indicative to what God's doing with the cosmos. That's a great point. It's a great question. And I think of Paul's work, especially yeah. here, because that's sort of you know, how he has set Romans 6, 7, and 8 up, is to say, well, actually, Romans 8 is the reality all along because what you see in Romans 7 is just a lie. And so I think when we ask the question of who Jesus is, if Jesus isn't primarily somebody who is, you know, Jesus's purpose isn't just to save us from our sins, though we need that. And, and I think that's the the Protestant trap, or that, that may be too crude, but at least that's the trap of focusing too much, I think, on the doctrine of justification in the context of this argument about, well, is it forensic or is it God putting the world to rights? Well, I think it's God putting the world to rights, as you said, Matt, is actually from N.T. Wright. But uh, I don't think that's the whole point of why we need Jesus. I may have made a mistake in my own work by not beginning with Romans 5. And Romans 5, I think, is the, the, yeah, it is the, the depiction of the first Adam, and then Christ as the second Adam. And this sets up the context for the following three chapters, 6, 7, and 8. Mm -hmm. And so if we understand who Jesus is as really the Adam, that he is the true man, he is humanity as humanity was meant to be. Right. And then we can go back and see, oh, this is what God was always doing. And so to do that, he is going to have to deliver from sin. That's the depiction, you know, throughout. The way that he will do that is depicted in Romans 6, that there is a rebirth, a passage, you know, a dying to one form of our humanity and a rebirth to uh, another kind of humanity. Chapter 7, of course, is the details of that. The thing, ironically, if you were to read Romans 5 to 8 and imagine that chapter 7, rather than chapter 8 or, you know, another chapter with a center, I think what you would get is our notions of justification. Mm-hmm. 
That is, that law would seem to be the main thing. And getting right with God and getting right with the law would be presumed to be our primary task that Jesus helps us with. I think that's why you have people that can read Romans 7 as if that's the normal Christian life because they're reading, misreading Romans 5 to 8 in a theory of justification that would miss the whole point of the book of Romans, and that is that the law is not the thing. Mm. In other words, the law is added. The law is a subsequent. The law is not definitive. The law doesn't enter into Romans chapter 8. That's all you have in Romans chapter 7. That is that God is, if he's there at all, it's only as lawgiver. In this understanding, we can read the Old Testament, we can read the story of Israel in light of the story of Christ, rather than vice versa. Yeah, I think that's great. So that's key, Paul. And I think that uh, to play off something you said, it's not just, this is going to move us along too, it's not just that we see what God is doing there, but in and through seeing what God is doing, we see who God is. And I think this is how the church develops this question about who is Jesus. Of course, with the resources they've been giving, coming straight out of these passages that we're talking about, such that Paul's understanding of who Jesus is concurs with the later development of Chalcedon. Jesus Christ is God and man having both a human nature and a divine nature in one person. So Chalcedon is the only way that we can really make sense of how Paul is distributing the Shema in between the Father and Jesus. And it also helps us, and I actually, this is the inside of Maximus the Confessor because he just takes Chalcedon and runs with it. Uh, but this is how we really make sense of how the incarnation and the cross work in relation to the act of creation that we're given in Genesis, right? So that what we have in Jesus, if who Jesus is, is the full definition of what it means to be human, is a picture of ultimate reality. Or we have already the truth of God, which is which is truth with the capital T being unveiled to us. And the way the truth that's being unveiled to us specifically is that the person of God, uh, the Son, who is identical to the person of Jesus Christ, is able to live in communion with human beings, such that, you know, the technical language there would be that the Son of God has two natures. It's the divine nature, of course, but then in hypostasized is the human nature, such that God the Son takes on a human nature and yet is not changed uh, in person, such that what we say about Jesus is true of God, and this is the God who has been revealed to us as the one who is personal to us, the one who is able to experience what we feel through life, is able to conquer death and give us new life. And that's a whole new way of setting what it means for the cosmos like, why does the cosmos exist? Why does God create? Once we say that, I think that's how we're, we eventually move to the point, well, of course it exists because God loves it, or we exist because God loves us. That's why these finite things don't fall out of use, because God is 
who God is as the one who would sustain human nature, even uh, you know within Himself. So, guys, I'm wondering if I have this right, and and forgive me if I've misunderstood, but are you saying that the that sin and death are not the only things that are preventing us from being joined fully with God? We would normally imagine that the well, the major problem is is sin and death, mm-hmm. and of course. It is. But is there something else missing? Well, Irenaeus would say uh, maturity, <laughs> that we're lacking in maturity. Okay. Uh, and this goes back to another idea that Paul's been writing about recently. It's not of necessity that being in a world that is somewhat hostile to us, that we would all be sinners. But it does turn out that way. So why is that? And I actually think that's the the way that the church fathers, Irenaeus is the one I know best, would answer that. It's, he would say that it's because we hadn't yet reached the full stature of what it means to be a human being. We hadn't yet become that Christ-like that, of course, we're, we're all sinners, and so we need saved from that too. But ultimately, the work of God is to create a people to cohabitate. What was behind my question there is, is because doesn't the doctrine of justification, as it is, you know, sort of traditionally, or at least in the last 500 years, and the way it's formed or understood, doesn't not take account for what you just said. It, it basically, um, what's the the focus is absolutely just sin and death and our guilty standing, but it doesn't take into into consideration what Irenaeus is saying. Do I have that right? Yeah. Well, there's two ways. of. Th- so I've got a funny story that helps. It's not my story. Uh, it's uh, Callisto Swears, who is, um, I don't know, you know, a metropolitan in the Eastern Orthodox Church. He was an Anglican before that, but he said he's English is my point. So he, he's on one of those double-decker buses in London one day, and he's in his full habit, which means he's dressed from head to toe in black, and he's got a cassock. He's got a huge beard and a big pectoral cross hanging from his neck. And somebody looks at him and says, are you saved? <laughs> and and uh, thankfully, Ware has a sense of humor, and he just looked at him and said, well, I am being saved, and I trust that God will continue to save me. And, and I think that's the way we have to look at justification, that justification and sanctification aren't two separate works. It's not as if, oh, justification is the legal transaction that you get taken care of uh, when you get baptized or whenever uh, you enter the church, or however you might look at that, right? Or say said the sinner's prayer, and then oh well, that's done. Now all that holiness bit is just uh, for funsies on top. <laughs> I don't really, you know, they actually are quite integral to one another. That we become holy as we become righteous, because what it means to become righteous is to partake of the righteousness of God, or to partake of the being of God, uh, the very nature of God, as Peter would put it. So I think all that's happening at once. Does that answer your question, Matt? Yeah, yeah. That, that is to actually become like Jesus Christ. Yeah, it's a participation in the life of the Trinity. And salvation, then, is descriptive of the whole process. That's right. So salvation, then, in this sense, isn't separate from, or it's not a second work to creation. That the work of creation itself is a work that has as its goal union with god for all people and a place for god to inhabit with human beings it's sort of it's one thing you know to sort of be bailed out i think most of us understand that we have put ourselves in a position before god where we and we absolutely we do we need to be you know almost to like use a legal term we need to be bailed out right and it's and everybody wants to be forgiven everybody wants to you know everybody wants god to say you know what you're forgiven, you you can inherit the kingdom. And it's like, well, of course, the sane among us would want that. It really is. And even in my own personal experience, that's one thing. 
be actually becoming holy though. And this goes back to what I was saying about reading the fathers, which is to my mind, just absolutely the focus. And again, at least in someone like origin is that becoming holy in that process of sanctification is quite another thing from just being sort of bailed out. It, it requires your participation, the mortification, you know, of the flesh, tears of repentance. It's something on a, on a very different order to become fully human. So it's one thing to go, man, glad that's, you know, taken care of. I don't have to go to hell or be destroyed or whatever it is. It's a whole nother thing, though, to be transformed into the likeness of God and Christ, sort of do the hard work of repentance and the entering into the consuming fire of, of God's holy refining fire. This is why I actually think that that Chalcedonian definition is so important here. It may just sound like a bit of abstract theology, but if we're Chalcedonian Christians, what we're affirming are truths about, well, we're answering this question, who is Jesus, in such a way that we really should be safe from answering that question about who is God and justification and the atonement in a way that makes God this wrathful being who's taking that wrath out on Jesus instead of us so that we might have Jesus's righteousness and never actually change. And I know that may be a parody of several views all at once, but uh, for our purposes, it'll work. Because what we're saying with Chalcedon is that who Jesus is, this personal being who is God in the flesh has come to us, who has loved us to the end, who has died for us, who has befriended humans. Uh, that's the very same Son of God who is consubstantial with the Father and the Holy Spirit. The same God that is consubstantial with the Father who judges us. That is the Son who created all things, by whom all things were created, rather, and all things continue to exist. And once we say that, then, we realize even more strongly that our sensibilities about who Jesus is have to be the same sensibilities about who God is more generally, even. What we're saying, then, is, well, if we know Jesus to be a God of self-sacrifice, one who would befriend us and would lead us into a life of righteousness, of hope, and of you know glory that looks like laying one's life down for others, then that's not a separate God from the Father. And so you would do Trinitarian injustice to imagine that, oh, the Father happens to be this person that's fine with, uh, you know, slaughtering the Son in some way to make all this work. And Jesus, meek and mild, is the one that we can feel safe with. And it's only because of Jesus that we can feel safe with the Father. You see the difference there, right? Paul, this is where you come in and just shine your light. <laughs> But don't be meek about it. <laughs> we can misunderstand who God is. My point with this would be that apart from Christ, it's not only that we're bound to misunderstand who God is, but we're bound to misunderstand who God is in the same way. That is, that there is a uniform misunderstanding that would do what you're describing, and that is to come up with some sort of wrathful figure. That is certainly a form of Christianity, but that form of Christianity mm -hmm. is the archetype or a type of the form of religion, that in one form or another, what you have in, certainly in idolatrous religion, I'm thinking when I say idolatrous religion, I'm usually actually not thinking biblical idolatry. I'm thinking Japan, of which I have a first hand experience. You know, those shrines or those temples, neither one are happy places. 
There are places that there are demonic figures that are the guardians. In other words, the whole thing is a fearful thing. And to come into this place, you're dealing with malign forces. And you want to deal very carefully because if you do it wrong, if you don't do the rituals in the proper way, or if you should not do the rituals at all, well, we all know that's why misfortune uh, will be visited upon you and your family. And that's often, even in modern Japan, people are in automobile accidents or bad things happen. They tend to be very, we would say, superstitious. But of course, that's the religion is that one primarily aimed at warding off the gods. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, what you have in the notion, I think, going back to the divine satisfaction, but certainly there in penal substitution, is just pagan religion Christianized, which is worse. You have all the Christian elements, but you're still doing pagan religion. That is that Jesus, who Jesus is, has not taken front and center. I think that's part of the difference that we're describing here. That we know God through Jesus. That's part of what it must mean to talk about the unveiling. It's the unveiling of the reality of who God is. God is not hidden from us because of the character of God. God is hidden from us because of our delusion, and you can describe that delusion as the law, the law of sin and death, our orientation to the law, in which this punishing, hostile figure is a kind of projection of the human predicament, of the hostility of the world, of the hostility of the human conscience towards itself. We are self-punishing because we live in a world that is punishing a world that is hostile, and we project that onto deity. What you get in Jesus, in Jesus Christ, is to say, that's not true of who God is, that's not true of what the world is, and this punishment, you know, the suffering that we would put upon ourselves and others is the suffering that we can be delivered from Mm -hmm. once we recognize that the delusion toward death drive or, or toward a kind of oppressive, violent existence is simply not a necessity. In fact, it's a lie. That's right. So that's exactly what I was hoping you would say. <laughs> Perfect. Um, I wasn't sure. <laughs> seriously, because I think this is, a, this is a good time to recap, because what we've said so far is that this question of who is Jesus is a foundational question, and it's one that if we answer incorrectly— or if we get this wrong, or actually we've said two things. We've said, one, you can get the nature of the question wrong. Um, But if you get the question wrong, or even the nature of the question wrong, what we're left with isn't Christianity, but something uh, that's perverse, a perversion of Christianity, and, you know, far more wicked than perhaps if we hadn't known uh, any of the truth at all. So that, you know, there's no more violent people than Christians who have misunderstood who Jesus are. They just want to go sacrifice everybody. Uh, for their own existence in the name of the cross. I think that's key. So because ultimately what we're circling back around to then is that Jesus is the truth, even as Jesus unveils uh, the true God. And this is, again, a Pauline sentiment. Uh, You see it in Galatians, just the nature of how Paul sees his own story in relation 
to who Jesus is. So if we read from Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, Paul says, But when he who had set me apart before I was born and had called me through his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia, and again I returned to Damascus. So the key thing I think that's in Paul's self-description or self-autobiography there is one, the word reveal is the, you know apocalyptic. It's an unveiling. But what Paul's saying is, you know, even the God who had already set me apart, the God who I had been studying my entire life, you know, Paul was quite educated in the law, the Torah, uh, and the Pentateuch, he's saying that it is through an unveiling of truth that everything begins to cohere or comes together in such a way that he can preach this as the gospel. And I think that's sometimes what we miss about the nature of this question, who is Jesus? So there's plenty of people throughout the ages who have been able, you know, we say Jesus is the truth or Jesus is, you know, almighty God. And yet we still will want to control that truth in such a way that it does violence to others. What Paul is saying is that the nature of the question is that we're asking about a truth that is so foundational that we can't fit this category as an absolute into some other system that we might control. We have to give up control in some way or other. So for St. Paul, the truth is ultimately something revealed by God and Jesus reveals God to us. Thus, there isn't a point in trying to get behind Paul's text or his writings. There's not any point to try to get behind who Jesus is so that we might be able to manipulate the powers in some way as the church. There's been different times when the church has tried to do this. In one way, we're saying there's no point in building or glorifying an institutionalized church. Now, I realize I'm saying this is, is one in a very institutionalized church, uh, at least if you would look at it from one perspective. But I think it's going along with what you've said, Paul, and that's what we're asking about is actually just what is really true? What is of, uh, you know, first order reality? And then what are the things that, you know, are constantly in flux or changing just happens to be the context that we find ourselves in? And you made the point that there's a distinction there between, well, is God hidden to us because uh, that's the nature of God? Or is God hidden to us because we've in some way uh, corrupted our vision? I think there's two answers to that. I mean, I think that it's not, I, I think it's obviously the, the latter, but it's not just by corruption of our vision, but I think it's also we take account of uh, how the patristics would talk about just our immaturity. That in, in one way or other, even if we weren't corrupt, we would need Jesus to be able to see this picture clearly, simply because we're finite people. Mm. Uh, and God is infinite, uncreated. So there, there is an aspect of that relationship that's already definitive of what we might know or what we might see, or at least how we might be brought to the truth. Uh, the Apostle Paul is saying the way we're brought to that truth is by an unveiling because of the way this relationship dynamic works. But that means that we're going to have to answer this question of who is Jesus and proceed with theology very carefully because it means we're not really in control of the truth that we would attempt to 
uh, spout off, but this is a conversation that involves our participation in a truth that's much larger than ourselves. Which is a really interesting way of going about it. And I love the way that you're you're saying the first question that we have to ask is who is Jesus? And it's I think it goes back to what you, you just said about sort of the first order reality. And that I think that what we do just habitually, what I do, is we mistake what's of you know sort of the first order reality in other words like i would mistake and imagine that well the first order reality is that i'm guilty that i'm a sinner that um i deserve punishment that hell is coming or whatever it is you know that basically it's all about me and my situation but that's not the first order reality of all at all if what you're describing is true what the first order reality would have to be is actually uh what's prior to everything that i just said is God's goodness, is God's love, is God's plan to redeem and save his creation, to join it to himself. And so what we would imagine is the most important thing, and that is is that I be declared not guilty, that I somehow get out of this or get off the hook or, or, or whatever, or be saved in that sense, is to just utterly miss the first order of reality that God's desire is that we would be united with him forever in a perfect union of love with with him and with our neighbor. And that is why it's important to ask or to answer rightly that question, who is Jesus? Because if we're ever to be the people that we're created to be, it's not that we just sort of stop sinning or that we, you know, get make it to heaven or whatever, but it's that we become like our Lord. That's right. So in what you're saying, Matt, I think that's exactly right. That we're saying that this truth, the truth of who Jesus is, isn't the sort of truth that we will institute. It doesn't become more true as we take control of it or explicate it. It's a truth that's being unveiled to us that we become engrafted in or we become a part of as participants. Uh, and the people that do the growing at that point are we ourselves. You know, we don't add something to God by participating in his nature. Maybe we could add a note that not only are we going to read scripture differently, in this understanding. But what the implication of your saying, Matt, is, well, we read all of reality differently. Certainly our anthropology is different, uh, and our whole approach to the world is different. In other words, one could look at the world through that kind of hostility. That's what Paul says, you know, that the hostility is in in some way definitive of us. But once you set that aside and realize that that is, in fact, a secondary thing that uh, maybe about the universe, certainly it does not pertain to who God is in regard to us, and that's the message in Christ. And once you see that message in Christ, then I think you can actually begin to read the world in a very different light. Yeah, absolutely. The sort of first order reality of the situation is, and this is such great news, right? Is that Jesus Christ is Lord and he loves us. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I mean, it sounds, it sounds so whatever. I don't mean to sound flaky or whatever. It's like, but that's quite literally the, the first order reality. If, if you, if you believe in the Christian tradition, that is, is that it's not my, my sort of egocentric, first order reality it's the fact that jesus christ has been made lord over all and the great news is is that he is good he is love that he is goodness itself that he is love itself that uh, he's beautiful the beautiful itself and he's calling me to share in his life and that my sin uh and my sort of egotism isn't definitive of the final outcome of this whole thing because god's goodness is what's most primary 
That's right. And so I think the conclusion to this and is perhaps the jumping off point to everything else. And that's to say that when we begin to do theology or when we begin to grow in the Christian life is another way of, of saying that, that we ask the question, who is Jesus? This is a crucial question. It's going to be foundational to us that we answer this question like Paul did in a theological way, which I mean theological in the most basic sense there that we're, we're going to answer the question, who is Jesus, and realize that we're participating in the being of, being of God when we do so. This is a good Eastern Orthodox sentiment, right, Matt? I mean, who gets to be called theologian in the Eastern Orthodox Church? Oh, I thought you were, I thought you were, <laughs> I thought you were just... It's not a trick question. <laughs> One who has seen God, right? Uh, you're, you're a theologian if you have seen God, and of course, even seeing there is just a metaphor. The idea is one who has beheld God and been beheld by God, one who has been brought into union with God, is truly a theologian. So I, that's the way we're asking and answering that question, is, well, who is Jesus? Well, Jesus is how we get brought into the presence of God and continue to participate in the nature, very nature of God. And that this is how we read scripture, this is our teaching of doctrine, uh, this is ethical instructions, this is how we read ourselves and the world, as Paul has said. And so I think that is the jumping off point for this conversation that I hope we'll have over the next uh, seven weeks. Wonderful beginning. I'm excited about the conversation. I think we've uh, laid the foundation, and I think your use of the word foundation is key there. Of course, what we've done is displace one human foundation with a very different kind mm. of foundationalism, the foundation. That, that To talk about Christ as foundation really is meaningful, and I think this conversation brought that. I mean, isn't it terrible, guys, that if you get this wrong, you know, again, it might sound, it's like, oh, you know, okay, yeah, God is good, God is love, you know, Jesus is Lord. These are all, this that's all too basic. But I think that what we're saying is, is that, yeah, but if you get this wrong, you get a God who requires blood sacrifice of a virgin. You know, uh, he, he, you know, it's like, in other words, you can get really, really, really bad yeah. if you get this wrong. <laughs> you know, in other words, you end up with a God who isn't all that good after. Uh, if you get it wrong, it's just really sad because, uh, you know, in the end, all shall be saved, right? But it's just so sad that that's a picture of life. It is. It's terrible. It's it's, you know, it, it, to live, it's basically to live without hope of God in the world, right? To live without hope, being without God in the world. Yeah, and these things, I mean, that's the thing. It's like, again, if, if you get God wrong here, in other words, if you if you fail, if I fail to understand God's goodness, very basic things, God's love, it's like, well, this trickles down into like the way that, you know, families treat one another, the way that we treat our friends, the way that we treat mm -hmm. other, you know, the, the, the foreigners or the strangers or other. I mean, it, it, this has uh, terrible, terrible consequences. If you get God wrong, people are probably going to end up getting hurt. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. We just need to understand from a Calvinistic point of view, and this is the grand tragedy you're describing. I think as a child, when I went forward at Revival, I for the first time, I, I wasn't really raised in a setting where I'd heard it before, and I really heard it, that God loves you. And man, I thought, that's hmm. great. That is just, I just, that just changes everything. It really just changed my value. No, and that's what I'm saying. Like we would imagine that there's some other more important fact or something like that. No, there's something more primary. It's like, 
No, that's that is it. That is the great news. And it's like, and by the way, most people I think don't really believe it. I mean, you know, what you're saying is is like when I, that yeah. Paul, the same exact thing happened to me because you know as a calvinist you're never quite sure at least i wasn't it's like well there's at least a chance that god you know hates me. i don't know and especially in my personal circumstance you're a vessel of wrath yeah that i'm a vessel of wrath that's exactly right that he created me with a bad end in mind and it's actually happening because i have all these different problems and you know it's like i'm i'm suffering and it appears as though god has forsaken me and theologically i have reasons to believe that that's a real possibility and so once the same thing paul once someone looked at me and said hey man matt you can a hundred percent without a shadow of a doubt because of jesus christ right and what he's done and what he's shown us about god know for in your heart for certain that god loves you it just it was a it was the best news that I'd ever heard because it was just the way that he said it and I was like, Man, even if I'm just can just hope that that's true, that's great. And then imagine another character entering the scene and explaining to you that this love you need to qualify it and you need to understand it in a certain light. You need to realize it's a kind of anthropomorphism, <laughs> that it's Really, the wrath of God that's primary. I think yeah. that's the grand tragedy. That's Hart's point, right? That, um, oddly enough, the only thing you can't take literally about God in Scripture, if you're a Calvinist, is God's love. Oh, God, what a tragedy. That is a, a tragedy. Yeah. That's tragic. And it, there's such an equivocation, you know, um, to where it's like, well, what does love even mean? Then? What, is, mm. you know, what does hate mean? What does love mean? What does it mean to be called a Christian? Because the words are just emptied of any real content. So in other words, I think, and this, I don't think this is a departure of our discussion. If what we're saying is, is that God is love and that we find that out first and foremost, you know, through the incarnation of the God, the son and how he lives and what he does and what he does not do. Right. It's like that gives us everything that we need to know about uh, the actual content of what the word love should mean <laughs> uh, but we evacuate we can so easily evacuate even the name mm -hmm. of jesus of any yeah. real meaning you know well see i know that's why like the whole point with chalcedon is so sort of abstract but that's why it's so important i mean that's really what was at stake right is jesus can we really talk about jesus and say that who we're talking about is god and I mean, I guess most people at that point would have said yes, but I guess the actual danger was, can who that is have any bearing on our lives? I mean, you know, the Monophysites, they, yeah. you know, yeah. Jesus only has one, one nature. Is that what it is? And so the, the point being like, no, Jesus really is. Ca and see, I, the way I think about it is if that would have been the case, then everything Irenaeus wrote would have been a lie. Yeah. So recapitulation would have been a lie. And recapitulation is really all we got. And that's to say that Jesus has taken everything that we are and said, nope, God welcomes this. Uh, you are welcome in God's presence and you continue to exist because God loves you. Yeah, I mean, it's a totally different picture. I, you know, whenever, anytime, I mean, unless you guys can correct me on this, it's like anytime they ask him, you know, in the Gospels, they say, well, Jesus, are you willing you know, are you willing? I, I know that you can do this if you're willing. And he always says, I am willing. Yeah, that's right. This is a great uh, foundation. Yeah, I think I'm excited about this because, I mean, this one's, you know, maybe the most, uh, it's the one where we're talking about the biggest topic. 
because we're trying to get everything introduced. Appreciate our conversation. Hey, it's like been, it's been a great conversation on Facebook. Share us, retweet it, send it to your friends, invite people to listen to our podcast. We're always hoping that our community expands, that we can have more people who are involved with what we're doing because we appreciate having as many conversation partners as we can get. And for that to happen, we need you to spread the word. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.